0: The Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Monday the 14th of February. Lots to come on this Valentine's Day show this evening. Biz News editor Alec Hogg speaks to Brent Hurst Wealth Management founder Magnus Haystack. An interview Haystack did with my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts recently about a dismal property investment decision that went viral and the second chat with the veteran investor is of even greater value as he dissects everything that went wrong with his harty's property investment it took him 13 years to sell that property losing half a million rand in the process then you'll hear my voice as i take you through part 2 of the second tranche of findings coming out of the state capture inquiry report it's all about denel this time and how the Guptas got their tentacles in there good and proper. Lastly, my colleague Linda van Tilburg in London spoke to the acting chief engineer on the MDA sat-constellation project Nyameko Roy. South Africa took an important step forward this year in space science when the Cape Peninsula University of Technology launched three nanosatellites. What's that all about? Then our partner at the Financial Times has all the international business news you need to know. It's over to my colleague Nadia Swart standing by with your news headlines.
1: BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock. The first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
2: President Saul Ramaphosa's cabinet has extended South Africa's national state of disaster, but says that work is now being done to bring it to a close next month. This follows a briefing by the National Joint Operational and Intelligence Structure last week to determine the extent to which the management of the COVID-19 pandemic still required the existence of the state of disaster. Inputs were received from various government departments to determine their respective areas of work that are at an advanced stage of completion, Cabinet said. After noting that some of the key departments dealing with COVID-19 had not yet concluded their analysis, Cabinet approved the final extension of the National State of Disaster to the 15th of March 2022. In his recent State of the Nation address, the President said that the end to the State of Disaster will be finalised once new regulations outside of the Disaster Management Act are complete. President Ramaphosa told Parliament's finance watchdog, the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, that he relied on public information when he claimed the ANC abused state funds for party activities. I do not have any direct and specific information on the alleged misuse of public funds for party political purposes, the President added. In January, Scopa sent Ramaphosa detailed questions on the allegations, which surfaced in a leaked audio recording. In the audio clip, Ramaphosa can be heard admitting that he was aware that the ANC had used public funds for party purposes and also suggesting that the funds came from the state security agency. Retail holding company Steinhoff claims that emails show that former chief executive officer Marcus Joerster was part of a fraudulent scheme. The group argued in court filings that emails written by Joerster prove he was part of a fraudulent scheme to trick the retailer out of hundreds of millions of rand email extracts come from Steinhoff's court case against British businessman Malcolm King, his son, and their company Formal Holdings. And now it's on to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was slightly low at 75600
3: In the price action, the gold miners are soaring. Actually all the miners are soaring. It's just the gold counters that are doing especially well. Goldfield's leading the pack nearly 10% up on the day. That's after a higher spot. Gold price over the weekend. On the downside, Steinhoff diving and Old Mutual not having a great day either. Both well in the red. The to crypto basket is 3% down for the day. And in the currency action, the Rand is slightly stronger against all the major currencies to 15 Rand 11 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand 44 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 11 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,856 an ounce. Kruger Rand will put you back 29 and a half thousand Rand. Rencrude is trading at $93.70 a barrel and the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin is trading around the 640,000 Rand level. The financial news Avenge, the construction and open cut contract mining group, said it had grown work in hand by 16% to 29.1 billion Rand as at December 31, a trading update said on Thursday. Work in hand included 12 billion rands worth of new work by Avengers Australasian construction and engineering subsidiary McConnell-Dowell. McConnell-Dowell, Mullman's, and Trident Steel have met expectations for the six-month period ended 31 December 2021 at both the revenue and operating profit levels, despite challenging conditions, the group said. A has been significantly restructured over the past few years after facing severe financial difficulties. McConnell Dowell's operating profit was expected to be in line with budget for the six month period. And despite ongoing efforts of the pandemic, including restrictions on the mobility of staff across all operating regions, the business continued to show resilience and has built on some of the me- momentum gathered in the prior reporting periods.
1: Magnus Haystick is with us in the virtual studio here at Biz News after a story last week. About you losing money. I've got fifty thousand people already have read it. And I think there's a maybe there's a bit of Schadenfreude in that to say, well, Magnus has been getting it so right with the offshore stuff, but even he can lose money once in a while.
4: Indeed. I would I'd like to see somebody who's been in financial markets as long as I and you and David Shapiro and, and not have made mistakes. We all make mistakes. And and this one was a particularly bad one in the sense that I did everything wrong as far as this investment was concerned. I was swayed by emotion. I was swayed by the bull market that was punted by everyone. I'm talking about the big property bull market, the newspapers, the media, the radios, the seminars were all about building a property empire. I fell for it and and, and I was persuaded by a family member, you know, we're going to make so much money. We buy property, we build a house and sell it or rent it. And of course, it was right at the top And, uh, and thousands of other South Africans are still paying the price for that. And I, I see it daily, people say, I can't sell my property. And it's quite true. It took me 13 years to sell that property, even though I'd put it on the market about eight years ago. There was just no buyers. And the, pro- the thing is with property, especially a stand that does not produce an income, you are liable for the rates and taxes, the levies, and it can affect your credit record. And it's just a lesson to the younger investors whenever there's a little upturn in the property market, you have these people who go around and say, well, property is the way to make money and build an empire. And I'm saying, forget about it. It's not, especially not in South Africa and with the macroeconomic environment that we have here. But it is a lesson to people. Don't be swayed by emotions and don't be swayed by pressure groups and fear of missing out. All the rules I broke, and I paid the price.
1: Well, I, I love the fact that you trumpet your failures, but you have also done incredibly well out of property. Where did you not make those mistakes?
4: You know, in the, in the, strangely enough, Alec, like, you have to go back in time. After the Soweto riots, we're going back 45 years ago. From 1977 to 1980, we had a commodity boom as well. And the economy was growing at 6%. And in that period, it was easy to make money. And then just after the 94 elections, the property market was incredibly strong up to about 2008. The rules have changed over time. And a lot of people did make a great deal of money, myself, including buying in places like Danefern when I was told, you know, it's so far in the felt. So yes, we made some nice, good money. But then 2008, the rules changed as far as property. Property does very well when, A, the economy is growing very, very rapidly. Two, when money is freely available and the banks are eager to to grow their mortgage books, which they were doing 2002 to 2008. And thirdly, money was cheap. That is when the property market does extremely well. That's why the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand are having enormous bull markets. If you look at the interest rates in those countries, it's 1% or 2%. People are refinancing mortgages at below 1% in the United Kingdom. So money is so cheap. You just buy a second or a third property and you build an empire. South Africa's interest rates have been way too high to try and do that trick, you know, with, with bond rates between 8 and 10%, you, you just, you just, uh, you just don't, don't stand a chance as far as interest rates are concerned.
1: So things changed in 2008, and if circumstances were to change to, to that kind of a situation, then presumably you'd look at property again. But for the moment, is there any property development in South Africa that you would be uh, maybe attracted to looking at as an outlier?
4: You know, uh, there are certain areas, uh, you know, but you're not going to make a mountain of money. It's not an easy way to make money. Yes, the Western Cape, France, Paul, Waldeville, maybe George uh, wilderness area, there's a demand for property there, but you're still not going to make a lot of money. You're, you've got two things against you. One is the high cost of money in South Africa. And secondly, the second one is the dramatic increase in rates and taxes over the last 10 to 15 years. And that's not only residential property that is suffering from this. The the commercial property guys are are suffering even more. They are saying it's just physically impossible to make the kind of returns that they used to with interest rates at at, at these levels, and more importantly, uh, administered prices, as they call it, just rocketing through the roof. So administered prices, which is in effect uh, uh, an additional tax on, on on property owners, it's just killing all the growth and, and we're all paying the price and it's unreported. I mean, you're about one of the few media outlets who writes about it, but I look at balance sheets of people all day long. I, I checked some prices myself over the weekend. I looked at Pecanwood, for instance, and, and and the areas around the dam. The prices there today Alec, are the same as they were eight, maybe even ten years ago. So people who've been banking on that capital appreciation uh, in preparation for the retirement or finding that that is actually such a drag on the capital and it is destroying many, many retirement dreams. But I can buy the same house I sold in Peking with 10 years ago for the same price. So someone who bought it from me has had no capital appreciation in 10 years. And, uh, you know, that, that you can multiply all around the country. The top end of the property market has virtually come to a standstill. Price movements are are very, very far below the inflation rate if you take it over a 10, 12 year period. So it has affected a lot of people. And and to answer your question, I would be very, very selective. You're looking for a uh, well-run province, first of all. And secondly, you're looking for a well-run municipality. And that kind of limits you to places like uh, Paul, Stellenbosch, Frank, uh, Franschuk, and maybe George Wilderness and Mossel Bay. And that's where you'll find where the guys are still, there's still an active property market. But many, many small towns, medium towns in the country, you come from the KwaZulu-Natal countryside. And like, I mean, those towns just don't have a conventional property market anymore. And if they do, at prices that, you could hardly believe uh, uh, if you stood back 10 or 15 years ago.
1: Well, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I have uh, good friends in Hilton and Howick, which, of course, is now the DA-run uh, municip- the only DA-run municipality in KZN um, with uh, young Chris Tapp- uh, Pappas who's taken over there. And suddenly the prices have yes. gone very, very strong in that area. But w- what about uh, to, in the north coast of KZN? We had some BT. Uh, which did pretty well, and now there's uh, there's a big development there at Blythdale, uh which I guess is uh, it's it's been around for a long time, but it seems to be getting new life now. Are there pockets uh, like that, Zambali, yeah. where there's yeah. you know there's lots of property on the on the market at in Zambali? Are there pockets that are worth uh, looking at if you're a long term investor?
4: Yeah, look, Zambali is fantastic. Blaisdell uh, is I've been on the sites. You know, it has had some legal problems and, and, and so on. And that's happening now. And I think that will be a good development over time. But it will not still not be the, the shortcut to riches that, that, you know, a generation or two we're, were told. You know, property is the way to make money in South Africa. The macroeconomic environment is against us. The political environment is against us. But yeah, north, no, northern KwaZulu-Natal, Mishlanga up to Belito. There are some wonderful developments. But it is still, um, you know, it's not a shortcut to riches that it used to be uh, and it's definitely not if we compare ourselves with other peer countries like I mentioned earlier. They are having tremendous uh, property booms and and there are uh, political factors that mitigate against that in, in, in my experience also. Too many young professionals have left the country 10, 20 years ago and even today they are or would have been the buyers of the properties that you were selling now they're simply not in the country they're all in other parts of the world they're buying in new zealand so you put all those things into a pot yes buy property uh, to live in it's a home you raise your kids but don't think that's going to make your money in the current circumstances it has to be in the stock market either in SA or or preferably still, in my view, offshore.
1: Now, you sent me some numbers this morning, which are absolutely fascinating. From the bottom of the market in April 2020, that's just after the COVID shock hit, the top 40 shares, uh, well, the, the, the top 10 of the top 40 shares have shown incredible growth. Leading the, the group is Sassel, which at one point, I recall it well, uh, people were talking about it going
5: bankrupt.
4: I, I did this. I had our research department you know, play around with this. Numbers. I've, I I kind of suspected we are going to get this result. So I asked my techies to have a look at the top 10 shares in the top 40, which gives you a good uh, reflection of what happened in our market since the bottom in March 2020. And you'll recall, go back March 2020, Alec, it was the end of the world. The world is coming to a standstill. COVID has changed everything, and boom, suddenly something changed. Not even the smartest experts in the world could have foreseen what happened since then. I mean, we're talking about suddenly there's a commodity boom. And from that low, I mean Sassel price went eight up eight hundred and what, twenty three percent, followed by MTN and and, and platinum shares, Jenco. So I mean Sassel was by far the outstanding share to have. Uh, been in uh, as a consequence of of oil going up from you about 18 months ago, oil was trading at below zero. I mean, there, there was a situation in the market that you, you were paying the oil producers to hold your oil or whatever. They were paying the, the market to take the oil that was so cheap. And something just happened, and people are still working it out. So yes, eight of those top 10 shares of commodity shares and as i said to you my heading and i've mentioned this before south africa just got very very lucky not only the stock market also from a revenue perspective all those companies or most of those companies uh paying record record profits paying taxes and suddenly the NC government or the government is flush with cash now therein lies the danger that this will be seen as a permanent and sustainable situation that these revenue levels will be sustained. And investors must be very, very careful. And I think Treasury also must be very careful. And they've warned about that. Professor Michael Sachs, he used to be at Treasury, has warned and said this is commodity cycles are cyclical and uh, we can have a downturn at any time. And you can't bank on commodities being and staying as high as it is, and hence tax revenues. But the danger is now that the government is introducing a big basic income grant. We don't know at what level, but we do know one thing: once introduced, it will not be taken away, and it will probably increase over time. And therein lies the danger for the macroeconomists. They'll be looking at, you know, GDP to taxes and those kind of ratios. Which, again, yes, it's fantastic when 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 commodities are running. There's money. Uh, we also have an election coming up in two years or 18 months from now. The danger is that the commodity cycle starts turning down, but our expenditure or budgeted expenditure stays at elevated levels, and then we will pay the price once again.
1: Where do you stand on the whole inflation story? Uh, clearly, if you'd been invested in Impala Platinum, Glencore, Northam, Sabanya, Anglo American Platinum, Uh, You would have made a huge return between March 2020 and today, but those stocks generally or commodity stocks generally do well in an inflationary environment because they can pass on those prices. And there is definitely a view that inflation is back and it's going to stay. Have you looked at that in any detail?
4: I look at it every day and I ask myself, what the heck is happening? You know, you've got now you have a situation where South African inflation rate is lower than the United States. It hasn't happened in 42 years. And what impact would it have on the Rand dollar exchange rate? What impact would it have on the offshore onshore debate? And secondly, what is the United States government or the Treasury going to do about this? Now that is the biggest issue in the markets right now. How uh, durable is or will, will will U.S. inflation likely turn out to be, and what response will you expect from the United States Federal Reserve? They still seem to stick to the storyline that it's, uh, it's 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 only for a short while, transitory. The rest of the market is not buying that story, and they say that the market will be affected by increased interest rates in the United States, maybe five times, seven times. Who knows? We don't know. But the market is taking fright as to what higher interest rates can do to not only financial markets, but also currency markets. So, as I said in an earlier uh, podcast, the easy money has been made. It has been very, very easy to make a lot of money uh, in global markets, especially in the United States. It's been a wonderful ride for 12, 13 years. Now the situation has changed. Now one has to look at your assumptions and be able to change your mindset if the facts change. And sometimes people just can't change their facts or their mindset. But we are in in uncharted water in many respects, Alec, and mistakes are going to be made. You know, is it time for gold? I had a long discussion with an investor this morning. He just wanted to buy gold, gold, gold. Gold has done nothing for two years, three years, but it might be the time for gold and gold shares. But uh, uh, I think you need a very diversified portfolio. You need Japan in there. You need a bit of China. You need commodity stocks in there. And maybe, and, and for, for so far, you know, the, the uh investment style, the investment value is doing very well. Is this durable? Those are the kind of questions that we faced with on an, on a, on, a, on a daily basis, but since the crack in the market, second of January, the value style has outperformed the growth style, and that's something that we need to look at. But
1: that's that's a month, <laughs> I suppose.
4: Well, that's that's that's. It might be early days. It might be a short-term blip. You know, that's why you know it's not that easy anymore to make the kind of money that we did make for our investors. So we just all have to work a little bit harder and try to stick to the facts, not emotions, and put your emotions aside.
1: So how do you position your clients' portfolios in this uncertain climate?
4: You must understand, most of our clients have been with us for a long time, and they've benefited tremendously from this boom in the offshore markets. And I get emails on a daily basis saying, thank you, I see what you've done. You've externalized my assets, you've priced my investments, predominantly in dollars and i've been saying this for many decades i'm saying invest in dollars and and, and pay in rands that's been a very smart investment strategy you also have to bear in mind that a lot of clients also have pension fund money which is priced predominantly in the local market so they might be taking a bit of pain on the offshore market but the local funds have suddenly come to their rescue so the thing tends to balance out my long-term or our long-term strategy has not changed we are still telling people, depending on personal situation, how much of your money should you should you export because it depends on your objectives. And we kind of think that the RAND at 1520 and and markets down by between 10 and 15% is not a bad entry level for people with fresh cash because they are buying at a 20% discount to two months ago. You're buying in the correction with a strong RAND uh, we don't know when the the rand is going to turn, but you're just buying at a cheaper level than you did two or three months ago. A lot of those top funds that we've been using have had their corrections and they are starting to move up already. Because the, the fund managers themselves are not stupid. They are buying when the markets are, are down and when people are selling in panic. I mean, Bailey Gifford, uh, Fundsmith, uh, US, uh, Franklin Templeton, all those funds are up in the last week or two. They're uh, they, they also wide awake. So not a bad time to consider some offshore expansion, but it's all based on your risk profile.
1: And the RAND at 15.20, which does make an international entry uh, much, much more attractive than, obviously, seventeen eighteen even higher.
4: Yeah, look, at 17, we didn't take money offshore. We just, in fact, you know, we will talk about the 17 RAND. I actually went and I checked, uh, you know, the, the RAND was 17... 25 I think for one day so it it spiked from 16 up to seventeen twenty-five, and spiked back to 16 this the next day so everybody's other end was at 17 or even 19 or something it was a one-day event and then that everybody looks at the level you've got to take the averages per month and the average was about was never even above 16 it was 15 uh, it it was about 1585 so even at that level you, some funds have still given you a positive return. But yes, the currency, you're never going to get right. You know, but the, the, the sad thing is South Africans react. When when the RAND is at the weakest, when there's panic, when the RAND is crashing, that's when people storm and say, take some money offshore, take some money offshore. And that's normally when we say, not a good idea, just wait until markets settle down. Now at 15, we say, not a bad time to be taking money offshore. I've taken some money offshore uh, in the last week or three. I don't know what the right price is. I'm just buying offshore assets at a fair value. And over time, that has been a fairly good strategy.
0: Hello, I'm Michael Apple. I'd like to take you along on this audio journey into the second state capture report, this time dealing with Danelle. Much like the other reports, it's incredibly detailed, but this is a breakdown of how our state arms manufacturer was gutted and captured by the Guptas and their associates. Just as background, between 2005 and 2010, Danelle was a loss-making enterprise. But from 2011 to 2015, the state-owned entity turns things around and was making a profit every year. By 2015, Denel's financial position had improved so much it was actually being praised in Parliament and in the media. The board was providing oversight and effective direction. And Denel even received a clean and unqualified audit from the Auditor General that year. Then, the Guptas got involved. Or more, they'd been trying to get involved several years before that. So our starting point of the Guptas' involvement is actually 2012. In January of that year, Riaz Saluji is appointed as the new group chief executive at Danel. Saluji isn't in that role long when someone comes knocking. He gets approached by a man called Salim Essa, a well known Gupta lieutenant, who invites Saluji to a meeting. He's told this invitation comes from the very top. Saluji ignores Essa for a while but finally relents and meets him at a coffee shop. Essa then drives him from the coffee shop to what Brian Malefa would call the Saxon World Shabin, the palatial corruption HQ the Guptas would insist people come to see them at. People were summoned more than invited. At this first meeting at the Guptas compound is public enterprises minister at the time, Malusi Gigaba, Tony and Atul Gupta. It's here where Gigaba tells Suluji the Guptas are his friends and he hopes that they can all work together. At a second meeting at the Guptas' home, Siluji meets Dudizane Zuma, the son of the then Head of State, and one of Ace Mahushule's sons Mahushule was the Premier of the Free State at the time). Salimesa himself, of course, is there, and tells Siluji that the Guptas supported his appointment as G.C.E.O. at Denel and that they (the Guptas) had the full support of quote, "the old man" and of Number One obviously a term that refers to Jacob Zuma. It's here where Essa tells him that the Guptas want to do business with Donnell. Soluji's response, according to the report, is he tells them they'll have to go through the proper business channels. From my experience of covering state capture over the years, this is quite a career-limiting move by Soluji, as you'll see later on. In the subsequent meetings with the Guptas in 2012, Tony Gupta tells Saluji he's not cooperating with them and that he didn't want to have to elevate this kind of behavior. That's a veiled threat to either work with them or they'd complain to Jacob Zuma. Tony Gupta would also moan to Saluji that Donnell wasn't supporting their media enterprise, the New Age newspaper, sufficiently through advertising or buying subscriptions. Other SOEs were pouring millions into their newspaper venture Remember the testimony of former cabinet spokesperson Temba Maseko that the Guptas wanted 600 million in government advertising diverted just to their newspaper? When Maseko refused, he was out of a job not long after. So Soluji clearly knows what's at stake here, but he maintains that proper processes had to be followed if the Guptas wanted to do business with Danil. The Guptas needed to get in to the industry, so they turned their gaze on a well-known, well-run, well-respected company in the industry called VR Laser. It was a functioning company that was used as a vehicle through which the Guptas would achieve their capture of Danel. Now, regarding all these meetings, the report says that, quote, There is no doubt that the Guptas brought Gigaba to these meetings to show Saluji that Gigabo was a mere tool in their hands, a dupe, who would do their bidding, and from whom Saluji could expect no protection. Close quote. The same way Dudizane was used at meetings. He'd sit there silently, but be an ever present reminder that anyone's non cooperation would see them being reported to Daddy. The Guptas even introduced Saluji to one Daniel Mancha a man who'd be appointed as the Donnell board chairperson in 2015. One thing about Muncher though, he was a former attorney of record for former President Jacob Zuma. He'd actually been struck off the role of attorneys in about 2007 for alleged dodgy dealings involving his trust account and clients' money being unaccounted for. They introduced Saluji to Mancha before his appointment to that very powerful position had even been made public. They clearly knew something nobody else did. This is, of course, a hallmark or a pattern that follows where the Guptas always knew in advance when changes would be made to cabinet, begging the question who was actually calling the shots, Zuma at the Union Buildings or the Guptas from Saxonwold through Zuma at the Union Buildings. In May 2014, Malusi Gigaba is replaced as Public Enterprises Minister by Lynn Brown. Saluji's relationship with Brown was good. Why wouldn't it be? In 2015, Donnell’s order book was singing to the tune of 35 billion rand, with 200 million rand in net profit that year. In her address to Donnell's AGM in late July 2015, she praised Salugi, even suggesting he be seconded to ESCOM to go help them out there. Zondo's report makes the point that Brown's comments are ironic, as a mere two months later, Salugi and two other officials are suspended by the new Donnell board under very strange circumstances. They are never given a disciplinary hearing in nine months of suspension. They're offered payouts if they just leave. They opted to stay and try and clear their names of these dubious allegations of fraud and malfeasance. But ultimately, they were pushed out of Denal, with Soluji receiving a 2.6 million rand settlement agreement. The chief financial officer received a payout of 8.4 million rand to go. And the company's secretary, the third person suspended, was given a 1.6 million rand payout to just go away. One of Lynn Brown's first big moves at Danel was to replace the entire board in September 2015. All except for one person actually, Johannes Motzeki. He's a former treasurer of the Imkonto Wessizwe Military Veterans Association, the MKMVA. And he's a Gupta business partner from 2010 already in a uranium mining venture called Shiva Uranium. That's right, the Guptas were actually mining uranium. It makes you think twice about why Zuma's government pushed so hard to get us involved in a trillion rand nuclear deal with Russia, doesn't it? Who would have benefited the most from a deal like that? A family that just happened to be mining uranium, I wager. So the new board is said to have no skills or expertise. The previous board had accountants, a person with anti-corruption expertise, academics in the fields of economic and management sciences, technology, lawyers. All of these people were cut, except for the one person who had existing business ties with the Guptas. Brown would also do something extraordinary. She announced the names of the new Audit and Risk Committee, a committee normally chosen by the board itself and not the minister. The report here notes that Brown also explicitly excluded appointing deputy directors general or DDGs from the board. Brown says it was because DDGs were too close to decision makers within SOEs and ironically she was acting to stop any corrupt activity. But Zondo's report finds that this excuse is ludicrous. Quote, she excluded them, the DDGs, because they could raise questions about the candidates that the Guptas wanted to be appointed. This is how keen she was to please the Guptas. Close quote. Brown had done this before, actually. She had once called former ESCOM board chair Zola Tsotsi to the Guptas' compound to instruct him on which people to place on one of the committees on the ESCOM board. The list that Tsotsi was given carried the exact same names he'd earlier received from Salim Essa. The report notes that Sotsi appears to have had some relationship with the Guptas, but when that soured, he was replaced by Dr. Gubane, yet another person with links to the Guptas. Brown's composition of the 2015 board at Danel would first go before the deployment committee of the ANC. The report makes the observation that, quote, the deployment committee of the ANC approved a board which consisted of a majority of members who were connected to the Guptas, close quote. board chairperson, the disgraced attorney Daniel Muncher, was asked by the state capture inquiry why the Guptas paid for his trips to India and Dubai in October 2015. Muncher gave no logical explanation and the report finds that, quote, The conclusion is irresistible. The overseas travel was quid pro quo for Muncha's services in effecting the capture of Danelle. As for Mr. Mancha, the report says he was not duped into acting as he did. He was a witting agent of state capture. Now, back to VR Laser and Danelle for a second. The report highlights that the Guptas were never prepared to compete for Danelle's business. Not fairly, anyway. So they used their purchase of VR Laser as a means to get in the door after loading the board with their henchmen. The Guptas plans went beyond just scoring unlawful tenders from Danelle. On 9 December 2015, national treasury officials meet with Danelle executives to discuss a recent announcement the SOE was entering into a joint venture with VR Laser Asia. The sole shareholder in that company is, surprise, surprise, Salim Essa. It was a shell company registered in Hong Kong with zero proven track record, but was set to make billions if the JV was approved. A joint venture of this nature, looking to exploit markets in Asia and the Pacific, needed treasury and public works approval. It had neither. Seemingly a stumbling block to not only this deal, but also the nuclear deal, was finance minister Nlantla Nene. That very day, the 9th of December 2015, he's fired by Zuma and replaced by weekend special Des van Rooyen. Just as an aside, van Rooyen is looking to challenge the state capture inquiry report, by the way. Van Rooyen is in office for only four days, in which time Donnell sought to rush that joint venture approval process through. But luckily, von Royen was removed faster than the creaky wheels within government could turn. As for Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown, Brown testified before the state capture inquiry that she did not know, nor had she ever spoken to Salim Essa before. But pesky cell phone records found she actually had eight telephone conversations with him. Another 12 calls were actually put through to Brown's number by Essa, but she didn't pick up. All the calls happened between the periods where new rather Gupta-compliant boards were being installed at ESCOM and Danell. The report states, quote, Brown was a witting participant in the Gupta scheme to capture Danell and ESCOM, close quote. In its recommendations, the report states that it cannot be left to politicians, or the ANC's deployment committee in other words, to choose who is placed on boards of SOEs, or who becomes chief executive or chief financial officer at state-owned entities. The report says law enforcement agencies should conduct further investigations into the decisions of that 2015 denial board, especially in relation to the unlawful suspension of those three executives and their subsequent payouts. As for Muncher, the Companies Act makes provision for someone to be declared a delinquent director, and it urges government to bring such action against Muncher and the board members. Interestingly, abuse of power is not a criminal offence, but Zondo’s report also asks that government consider making it a statutory offence for any person vested with public power to abuse it. So this, in essence, is the recipe for how you capture an SOE. You find a state-owned entity that has just received a clean audit that is profitable, and you get rid of the board. You have a pliable minister in place to strong-arm executives who put up a fight. You suspend those executives, you give them millions in payouts, but you make them go away. You buy a company, VR Laser in this case, that was already doing work for Donnell, and you enter into several exclusive contracts with the SOE, those tenders are rigged in your favor, completely unlawful, but it'll see millions transferred out of a functioning SOE into the hands of the Guptas and their associates. That money is siphoned out of South Africa, designated for shell companies in Dubai and Hong Kong. Or you use the taxpayer's money from these giant payouts to purchase other entities you then force the state to do business with. Rinse and repeat. Thanks for
6: I'm Linda Tolberg for Biz News. South Africa took an important step forward this year in space science when the Cape Peninsula University of Technology launched three nanosatellites. Although other African countries have sent up satellites into space, these are the first constellation of satellites developed and designed in Africa. They are called mda Sat and are designed to collect data that will be used to monitor South Africa's marine resources. The acting chief engineer of the MDA SAT Constellation project is Nyameko Hoy. He told BizNews about the experience of working with Elon Musk's SpaceX and what this means for South Africa. Nyameko, welcome to BizNews. So you've launched the satellites with the help of SpaceX. When will they start giving you data?
5: Okay, currently, yes, the satellites are in the air and uh, we're still are, uh, stabilizing them. And uh, we, when you have one satellite, it's quite easier because you've got one target to work with. And then right now we have three satellites and then they, they're kind of uh, separated by a margin of like one minute, one minute in between. So within that one minute, you try to capture data from all three of them. So it's the first time actually we've launched a, a constellation
6: so this is big for South Africa. We're taking this giant leap into satellite technology.
5: Yes, ma'am. I, I, can, say, I can say that it's, it's quite big for us. I mean, the amount of uh, interest that we get from people from Africa, from like, international people who, who are supporting us, who are also interested in the work that we do, I think it's a huge milestone uh, that we have achieved uh, uh, in the last two weeks, actually, we have showcased, like, the huge uh, possibility and the huge technological advancement that we have in uh, South Africa and in Cape Town.
6: The other interesting South African element was that Elon Musk, SpaceX helped you to launch the satellites. What was it like working with SpaceX?
5: Oh, working with SpaceX, okay, uh, it, it, it's uh, it's an experience, you know, it's an experience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have launched two satellites previously with the, with the Russians, just with Soyuz, and then it was easy. The first one was the Soyuz, so it was like kind of a copy and paste from the previous work. We need to do the second one. But now it was a different entity at all, and then so the requirements kind of changed a little bit. And also the, 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 the documentation that you have to do, you know, you have to comply to kind of change a little bit. So. It was kind of a challenge, and then the decision also to launch with SpaceX. I can say it was kind of a, a, a quick decision that we had to take <laughs> because we had to use the, the earliest opportunities we can we have. And then, when that opportunity came, we didn't expect a lot of differences from the Soyuz, but uh, there were some major differences that we can we can say that I've noted. <laughs>
6: When you said you would love to one day go to NASA or go and visit SpaceX?
5: Yeah, it, it would be lovely to have that tour at some point in life. But I would say that if we forever, like for example, if we didn't have the epidemic that we had, I would probably would have been there. I mean, just going to Florida, it, it would be like not everybody gets that chance, not everybody gets that opportunity. But if uh, ever it will be present itself to my pathway, it will be very, very uh, exciting. It will be a very exciting day. Yes.
6: So, Nyameka, you're the acting chief engineer on the MDA SAT project. Um, how did you get interested in satellites and in
5: space? The interest actually... I always had uh, sort of an interest in space through, like, astronomy and, you know, like, astrophysics, because, you know, you get that time after high school, where you're thinking, what, is, what am I going to do with my life, you know? But, uh, so I had uh, some interest in it, but unfortunately, uh, engineering was the simplest, uh, because you don't know who I was. You you're not really clear of what market you're going to fulfill with that, and then the market is sort of uh, limited, you know, thinking in South Africa's, you know, terms. But uh, when I got an opportunity, and then I saw this opportunity of becoming a space engineer, it dawned to me that uh, probably it's something that I should pursue. I mean, I've I went on to work for other companies while I was in South Africa. And then uh, there were engineering companies, of course, they were quite good within the, with the, the influence they had within my training. But uh, when I, when I got that opportunity of working as a space engineer, you know, it was quite fascinating quite fascinating actually. It was very interesting and, you know. So you studied
6: engineering first and then then what did a master's or what did you study?
5: Yes, I did my undergrad in engineering, electrical engineering. And then for my postgrad, uh, I did that uh, now. It was more focused to space engineering because we had to develop communication subsystems for the first mission, which is a tube one that we launched in 2013. As part of my thesis for my master's, it was part of that project. So that's when now I discovered like, uh, material to use and stuff like that. And how critical it is, and uh, like learning about how to keep stuff in in space, you know, it's one of the fascinating things, getting orbital parameters and uh, the trajectory of the satellites that you launch, you know, it was a nice and fascinating mathematics, it? it was quite enjoyable.
6: So, you've got to keep these three nano satellites. Um, you said they're small, between one and 10 kilograms. You've got to keep them in space. And when would they start giving you data? And what are you going to do with that data?
5: Uh, we expecting the first uh, batch of data within the next month. I think end of February, we will start commissioning the payloads. Right now, the main thing is just to get the stabilization and the and the audit uh, parameters correctly aligned uh, with our ground station so that we can complete that part of the mission. And then we'll turn on the payloads now and then we commission them and then we show that uh, to our stakeholders that that, that is uh, happening. And then, uh, we can get that data that the, the, that the commissioners to, <coughs> to gather from it.
6: So, is the idea to spot illegal fishing or ships dumping waste into the ocean?
5: It's fishing. I mean, they are, they are South African boats that they are not licensed to fish, but people, they still continue doing that because nobody's really looking into it. And then, uh, in order to get that, uh, we need somebody to kind of look into it. And then with the horizon and stuff like that, if a person just goes over 200 kilometers away from Marshall, we can't really detect that with the terrestrial radio. Maybe we can detect it, but the signal strength is not that, that strong. So there might be pictures there, but with the satellite, you can see that boat with, even if it's five hundred kilometers away. And then that boat, whereby probably the navy or the coast guard can go in there and find out exactly the reason or that why that boat is there or why it's in our economic zone. Yes.
6: Yeah, I know that the International Space Station circumnavigates the Earth every what's it ninety one minutes. How often will your nano satellites fly past? <laughs>
5: Actually, uh, if you think about it, I think it's about two minutes uh, from that 91. (laughs) Maybe two minutes more because we're like 100 100 kilometers just above the the ISS. We are 100 kilometers above it. So if it's uh, doing one hour, 30 minutes, I think we're doing one hour, 35 minutes.
6: So how do you ensure at the end of the life of these satellites that they do not become space junk?
5: Uh, No, actually, because we kind of try to do that on every conference that uh, we go to, uh, satellite engineers and stuff like that, uh, conferences that we go to, sorry. uh, We usually make sure that also we have an obligation from South African government, which is uh, uh, South African Space Council, to make sure that uh, the satellites, they re-enter the atmosphere and then they burn out. When we try to look for an orbit uh, or the altitude of the satellite, we always try to keep it around 550 to 600 the maximum that we can go into so that we can uh, have, a, within our simulation, we can say that it might come back within the next 30 years. So it will burn out. It won't stay a space shuttle. If ever we can take those, uh, let's say, about 1,000, like, it will take more than 100 or so years to come down. So we don't want that. We always encourage that we keep it uh, anywhere below, above 400, okay, from 300 up, depending on the lifespan of the mission. So we try to keep them as low open as possible so that they don't stay up there and, uh, and it comes to this
7: Today is Monday, February 14th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz heads to Ukraine and Russia this week to try and calm tensions, and the German publishing giant Axel Springer fired a top editor because of sexual misconduct charges. Our Berlin correspondent Erica Solomon investigated how the company handled the claims and what it says about the country's media industry.
8: I think one woman describes to me as feeling like she was still stuck in the 80s. I'm
7: Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz heads to Kiev today and Moscow tomorrow. He'll launch a fresh effort to deter Russia from attacking Ukraine. This trip comes on the heels of a Joe Biden phone call to Vladimir Putin this weekend and other diplomatic efforts that are united for the most part. Here's the FT's Berlin bureau chief Guy Chazan.
9: It is definitely the case that you know when each of these world leaders meets Putin, they have a slightly different agenda. I mean, obviously Germany's relationship with Moscow is very much seen through the prism of the energy ties that they have, the fact that Germany is so dependent on Russian natural gas. And that inevitably colors the kind of negotiations that Schultz will be having with Putin.
7: No matter what Putin's actually planning, Guy says the Russian leader is probably enjoying the attention.
9: Everybody's beating a path to Putin's door at the moment. He's enjoying his moment in the limelight. He's at a point of exerting maximum pressure on NATO and on the EU and on the US. And he knows that uh, he'll only be able to continue to exert that pressure if the troops are still there and talk of an invasion is still in the air. So it could just be coercive diplomacy on Putin's part uh, to extort the maximum advantage from this situation.
7: That's the FT's Berlin Bureau Chief Guy Chazan. On Germany's domestic front, the country recently had its first big Me Too moment. The powerful German media company Axel Springer fired one of its senior editors at the tabloid Bild. Julian Reichelt was accused of having sexual affairs with junior women employees and engaging in other inappropriate behaviors. And it's not just the affairs making headlines. It's the way, after the women came forward, Axel Springer executives handled the situation.
8: And they agreed that the best way to handle it would be an internal investigation. So they hired an external law firm, and it was all done, you know, ostensibly very by the books.
7: That's our Berlin correspondent, Erica Solomon. She began investigating the company's by-the-books process after executives suspended, but then reinstated Reichelt, saying he hadn't broken any laws.
8: That is true. He actually, in fact, did not break any laws, and he didn't even break any company rules. Before this scandal happened, there were no company regulations surrounding workplace relationships or affairs. But what happened is that if several months later, more than six months later, some allegations of what these affairs entailed started to make it into the press.
7: Yeah, including the New York Times, Erica. And it was actually after the Times came out with its story that Axel Springer fired Reichelt. Uh, at what point did you get interested in this story?
8: I had always been interested in the story actually from when it, when Reichelt was first reinstated because I thought that the way they described their decision was interesting. I mean, if you think about it, like if a company says we're bringing this person back because they didn't break the law, it seems a little bit like a low bar. It felt to me like there was something unusual about the language that they were using. And what we did at the FT was we wanted to find out, okay, So this man in October was dismissed because of his behavior. But what did his bosses know? What did the executives know? What did these major private equity investors that have backed Axel Springer know?
7: And just, you know, for context, um, for our listeners, as all this is happening, the company was expanding globally. It's, you know, it's snapping up big U.S. publications, including one that's really big here, Politico. So at this point, Erica, what did the higher-ups at Axel Springer know about the sexual misconduct claims?
8: A lot. I mean, I think— Of course, you can dispute how many details, the extent of each story, what they knew. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that they were capable of getting almost all the significant elements of the story on their own before the legal inquiry into this um, began, the one that they initiated. So this idea that they didn't know, which was their main defense when they chose to ultimately fire Reichelt, I think is problematic because... You can argue whether how much each individual person on the executive board knew, but it's difficult, given the facts that we reviewed, to think that they had no way to try and find it out. So it shows a little bit of neglect or, or you know, lack of care of duty. That's one thing. The other thing was that there's one particularly dramatic story in the Reichelt affair, which involves a woman with whom he met in hotel rooms and who says that she felt extremely depressed in the wake of that affair and you know how it affected her. And that story was, in fact, known to senior employees uh, at Axel Springer with direct access to the board before their own investigation began. And the response that Axel Springer gives is that, well, we weren't aware of any of the details in this transcript. But what we found as an example is that, in fact, they should have been able to have access to that entire story because the first time that story was told was not to the law firm that they hired, but rather to their own compliance officer.
7: So, Erica, what did they say to you when you pressed them on this?
8: Yeah, this was a point that it's been very hard for us to get clarity from them on. Of course, we raised it many times, and what we're told by the company is that they feel like they acted appropriately and did everything that they could, and they said that there was a lot of barriers between who could tell who what. I am not in a position to decide that, but I do think that, again, it goes back to the question of how much do you wanna know? And um, and I think that this is where you can really ask some questions of the executive boards.
7: So, Erica, I just, you know, I just want to say that this story is so interesting to me. And I think a big part of it is that uh, the U.S. had its Me Too moment, right? It started about five years ago and a lot of media executives and media personalities lost their jobs in the process after these sexual misconduct allegations came out. And it, it sounds to me that it hasn't happened the same way in Germany, that it's just having this moment now.
8: Yes, Germany, um, you know, if you ask a lot of female journalists here, they will will say that, you know, Germany never had its Me Too moment when it came to, particularly to media. And, you know, one of the things that was striking to me was how many women who didn't work at Axel Springer, but who just like worked at other organizations, but found out I was researching this, started coming to talk to me and say, you know, It's not just this situation, Axel Springer. There's just this general. I think one woman described it to me as feeling like she was still stuck in the '80s. But you know, another element is that it is getting kind of trapped in these culture wars or you know political struggles that we're seeing in a lot of democracies. Where the way that Axel Springer framed this, and I think in some ways this is um, for a lot of people the most troubling part of the story, was instead of looking at this as like okay, we have these allegations from women, what's it about, how serious is it? Almost immediately, they started to believe that this was being engineered in some way by political opponents, that this is part of a plot or, you know, if not a plot, then at least, you know, some concerted effort by a lot of different political forces in Germany and the media to to take them down. And that's really how a lot of them saw this whole crisis.
7: Erica Solomon is the FT's Berlin correspondent. Stockpiles of some of the world's most important commodities are at historically low levels. Shortages are hitting everything from energy to agriculture. It's especially acute for metals and in futures markets where some spot prices, meaning immediate delivery, are now higher than prices for contracts for future delivery. Traders are basically paying big premiums to secure supplies immediately. Copper stocks at major exchanges now represent less than a week of global consumption, and even Arabica coffee reserves have fallen to their lowest level in 22 years. All these shortages will, of course, likely mean higher prices.
1: Well, quite a show we've had for you this evening. We look forward to being back in your company again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.